What's good, y'all? Welcome to the John Cat Show, episode number 51. Uh, being joined by a very special guest today, Mrs. Aggie Regan. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, it's been uh, a while coming. Aggie's got some podcasts on KLRN Radio. Uh, he Said, She Said with Mickey Blowtorch. I actually filled in for that a couple times. Yeah, you did. You knocked it out of the park, too. <laughs> Although it's not it's not He Said, She Said when the guy it becomes the dude bro show at that point. That's right. So you guys should check that out. She's got other pods on K. If you go to klrnradio.com, uh, there's Cocktail Lounge, there's Toxic Masculinity, uh, and some really great content, and Aggie Reekin on, uh, on Twitter as well. Um, we actually did recently, these guys were nice enough to, to let me into their little, their little family over there at KLRN. They do these um, productions. For holidays mm-hmm. and stuff and i listened to them but i'd never had the honor of being part of one they let the token jew come in there for the christmas show <laughs> and we did uh it's a wonderful life which i was so impressed with you guys i, I really i said i wasn't gonna put myself down anymore but i didn't bring my a-game to that i i had no idea you guys were gonna be so polished at it but oh uh, well you know i thought you did great i was no. I had to mute my my mic because I was laughing every time she came on. I wasn't so, I wasn't fishing. So that there. means that you did really, really good. <laughs> no, Aggie was a star that you guys did uh Aggie was Mary. George and Mary were stole the show. It was just the Spanglish version. That's right. <laughs> of Mary. Uh, G playing the the guy that played George. If you guys didn't see that, I think that's also it's on Spotify as well. And and the KLRN site, um, check check that out. I, that was that was fun times. The guy that played George, I was just very impressed with the whole time. Oh really yeah, that. that was G, and he has a really great Jimmy Stewart impression, and he just he delivered that throughout the entire production. I I, I was like blown away. Yeah, it was legit. <laughs> really? It was legit acting. I, I'm I'm glad I had my mic muted too. Because uh, I was laughing the whole time. A lot of improv going on there. A lot of ad-libbing. We do that a lot. <laughs> so mm-hmm. tell, tell us a little bit about your, your background. You're in podcasting. You're from uh, Puerto Rico originally? I am. I'm originally from Puerto Rico. I was born there and I did not move to the States until I was about nine and a half. Uh, it was the summer of 76 that my dad moved us all over. He had been here for a year. And uh, we moved to the very southern part of Texas in in the summer of 76. And everything was red, white, and blue. And I had no idea what was going on. <laughs> and, of course, it was the bicentennial. And my dad actually explained it to us um, one, uh, one night because my sister asked, why is everything, you know, the same color? She didn't understand it. I thought it was pretty. And she was just trying to make it work in her head. And uh, so my dad sat us down and told us the kid-friendly ver- version of the American Revolution, which was pretty cool. <laughs> oh, that's a, I like that. It's a good way to phrase it. So yeah. you were you were exposed to uh, all of the patriotism right away. How- yeah, my you know that was something that my dad was very adamant about doing when we came here. He wanted us to assimilate, but with the proviso that we would not give up our Puerto Rican roots. But with the understanding that, yeah, now we're here in America, we're Americans. So, you know, get used to living the way they do here. 
I've always wondered how that worked in Puerto Rico. Like, you know, obviously it's it's technically a territory, right? Yes. So it's not, it's like it's under the jurisdiction of the U.S., but it still has its own government. And mm-hmm. it is weird it's- that it would be under U.S. jurisdiction, but you guys don't get to vote. There's no reps in Congress, right? Like, do people that live there feel American or you feel like it's your own country, right? No, uh, you know, it's really funny because this is a, this is a constant battle with my cousins. <laughs> I'm in a social media group with them and they always accuse me of being American. And, uh, but the thing is, you know, they try to bridge that gap between being American and being Puerto Rican, but they don't like, they don't like doing it. They really think that they're just Puerto Rican until something bad happens. And then they're all Americans, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> it's, I'm like, yeah, oh, okay. <laughs> I like I, I'm curious what the more common sentiment is there, because it's got to be a strange thing to not be considered a country, but then to not officially be represented under the republic of the country you're a part of. It's a weird dichotomy, I guess. Um, for the most part, my entire family does not identify as American. They identify as Puerto Rican. And they're very proud of that fact and not resentful of the fact that it is a territory with a couple of exceptions, like my uncle, who would love for Puerto Rico to become an independent country. But um, for the most part, they identify as Puerto Rican and the whole American thing is kind of shelved in the back. Uh, They do get some perks that people that live here in the States do not get by virtue of being a territory. What are those? Um, uh, yeah, it's a tax haven for one. Uh, for another, uh, they do get federal aid, just like a, a state would, but without any of the provisos or anything like that. We have our own, you know, th- we have the National Guard down there and everything, and we, the governor can activate it and blah, blah, blah. We can do all that, but um, we don't serve at the um, pleasure of the press president, so to speak. Um, The president actually, a lot of people don't know, but uh, the president of the United States doesn't have the authority to go anywhere on the island unless the governor tells him it's okay. (laughs) You know, that kind of thing. It it, it makes sense Um, in a way you didn't vote for the guy, you know? Yeah. And and that's another thing, you know, a lot of, a lot of Puerto Ricans resent the fact that we don't have a vote. We do have a voice. A representative right. voice, but we don't have a vote uh, in uh, the House of Representatives. You know that voice does carry uh, some weight. Now there are some in Puerto Rico that believe that if you vote for statehood, then the U.S. has to give you statehood, and that's unfortunately not how it works. I've had to explain this a lot to my family. Right. So, <laughs> so they don't. You don't pay a federal income tax to the U.S. in I, Puerto Rico, right? I think that there is, but there is no sales tax. Uh, oh, and a lot of companies companies are, are there because it is a huge tax break. You know, um, you know, Colgate-Palmolive has a huge company there. I mean, I think they're actually centered there now. Olay, Procter & Gamble, uh, and myriad of uh, pharmaceutical companies like Baxter, Warner, Lambert, um, Pfizer, they all have their own enclaves 
in Puerto Rico because it is a tax haven. Yeah. Um, you think a lot of places here would, would catch on to that whole idea. It amazes me when you look at a place like California yeah. uh, as a, just a microcosm. Can't think of the word where countries take their headquarters overseas, but the, this idea that we should be taxing corporations more as if they don't have the flexibility to just relocate and take advantage of better. Like, I would say, would you rather have 20% of everything or 50% of nothing, right? Yeah. You can, you can raise the rate higher. Nobody's going to be there to pay you. No, the, I mean, there's, there's a reason that a lot of countries are fleeing California. Hell, I mean, like yeah. Dell came to Texas. Uh, Elon Musk took advantage and located part of his uh, business to Texas. Um, there's been a, a lot of moving <laughs> yeah. uh, to Texas. Texas is uh, a friendlier state. Florida has become a lot friendlier. Well, um, the, the country became friendlier. People always say, you know, how, how Trump's tax cut was for the rich or whatever. But the biggest tax cut was the corporate tax cut. And yes. uh, we re we did repatriate, I don't know the exact figure, hundreds of billions. Of, a lot of companies did come back. Yeah, they, they did. They would and, rather uh, be here if it's a comparable rate. That was one of the uh, things that uh, my dad was telling me about in Puerto Rico. They were, Puerto Rico's in dire financial um, straits. They have been in the red for, <laughs> I don't know how long. When Maria happened, a lot of people forget that just a few days before, the island got hit by Irma. Yeah. Hurricane Irma. And that saturated the entire island. So when Maria hit, there was no place for the water to go. So that made, uh, there was a lot of destruction because of that. There were a lot of mudslides that were not expected. There were a lot of um, uh, buildings that um, were just washed away because, you know, the water that came through the rivers and it was far more than it was expected. So financial aid was provided by the U.S. You know, it was a state of emergency and all that stuff. And a lot of people over here were understanding that the U.S. was not doing anything because we were getting reports from the capital, you know, in San Juan, the mayor of San Juan particularly and, and the governor and, and all that. Well, my dad was there. My dad got stuck there. And he was stuck in our hometown, which, by the way, there's only three roads in or out that were all washed out. So the only way for help to come in was via helicopter. <laughs> so the, the citizens of the town got together and cleared out areas for the helicopters to land. And so there was aid coming in. And my dad told me, I was like, oh, we had running water within two days. And I'm like, according to everybody else, I'm hearing that. There is absolutely no running water in in any place in Puerto Rico. It's like he says that's absolutely not true. Yeah, now the electricity is different, right? But the run they had running water that was and they had natural gas already. So um, you know uh, there there was a lot of help going on, but you know because of who was president then, right? A lot of uh, information was being squelched. Yeah, we politicize everything now. It's really wild. Like, it, you know, certain things are, are just completely non-political, natural disasters. Something like a pandemic should not be a political. It's just we immediately take everything and separate. We didn't used to really do that. Or, you know, even during, I'd say, the first half of my life, it felt like both sides kind of agreed on a set of basics 
I always use 9-11 as a good example. You saw how the country united yes. after 9-11. We would never do that today. If 9-11 happened today, I don't know which sides it would be on what, right? Maybe because Bush was uh, president, you know, the right would be supportive and the left would, would, whatever it would be. But there would be a split. It wouldn't be, let's come yeah. together. It would be half the country wants to go to kill bin Laden. And Afghan. it wouldn't have been this united front of, you know, let's protect our country. Let's go over there and get the guys that did this, et cetera. Um, no, I, I agree. I agree. If, you know, God forbid this would happen, but if there were a civil war today, it wouldn't be uh, divided by, a, you know, latitude or even longitude. It would be, you know, neighbor against neighbor, literally block against block. That's, so. that's why I say we won't ever have a civil war in this country. It, because yeah, of that it, reason, because we're so homogenized, if that's the right, it's like we're, you, you can't, you're going to go door to door and be like, where do you stand? You know, back in the day, you knew if you were in a certain state and that was your residence, you were fighting for your state. Really didn't even matter what your beliefs were. Now it would yeah. be ideologically based. I'd say we're much more likely to have a revolutionary type event than a uh, civil one, I always say. More yeah, keep of, that, you know, the second, the third amendment, keep that in mind. <laughs> yeah, no, but I could see people rising up against the government a lot more easily than I could see neighbor against neighbor. Yes, uh, I think a lot of people are starting to view that it's not the neighbor that's the problem. It's that which is instigating the neighbor that is the problem. And most it. of the time it happens to be whoever, you know, whoever has the positions of power, which usually is the government. Yeah, that's the biggest difference that we've seen. It's something I talk about a lot, which is the, the people at the top pushing the divisiveness. I, I, it, it really is because you see all of this. The, the one thing that I hate more than I hate affirmative action is DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. I hate that with a passion because it is the exact opposite of what they claim to do. They keep dividing people into smaller and smaller boxes. Yeah, the social engineering stuff has never worked. And it's, yes, you nailed it. It's, I always say, What's more racist than that? You guys are separating everyone out by the color of their skin, their religion. You're labeling everyone. You're putting them into boxes. And then you're treating them differently based on that information. Like, that's exactly the opposite of equality. It's, a, you know, they always talk about equality of opportunity versus equality of outcome. They're trying to engineer these weird outcomes. That's a huge problem. Um, yeah. But, yeah, they want to separate everybody into these camps. You believe this, you believe this, so now you're this person and you're that person, whether it's a hurricane, right? Yeah, Anything, and, and, and they come for everybody. A perfect example is Lin-Manuel Rivera, who is you know, the guy who wrote Hamilton yes. and started Hamilton. And when he did Hamilton, he was specific. He wanted no white people cast in the production. This was going to be a completely POC production and blah, blah, blah. And you know what? It's his thing. The music is wonderful. I will never take away from his talent. I don't like the guy because <laughs> he happens to be a good friend of a Puerto Rican terrorist. Uh, so I tend to not like him in that respect, but I won't take away from his talent. When he did his biographical film, he was raked over the coals because there weren't enough Afro hispanics in it and i'm like but it's his movie about him 
right. how he grew up. He didn't have that experience. Why are you trying to drag people who were not in his life, you know, in yeah. his circle into it? Well, it's just, it's, it's not equitable. And I'm like, yeah, that's right. the problem. I'm okay with people wanting, well, like you said, when it's your project, do whatever you want. You know, right. the, the Sopranos wanted to cast all real New Jersey Italian people, right? You know, <laughs> if they would have said, because they wanted it to be that authentic and the accents to be right and the people from the actual area where it's being filmed. Right. If you would have said, hey, you know, where's the uh, the black or Latino actors? You know, this is a show about a specific. Oh, movie. yeah. The Sopranos could not be made today. You would have to you include could... a lot of BIPOC people in it. I think you can still make certain types of, um, I, I, I don't know. I, it's funny. I saw Quentin Tarantino talking about that. I thought he really said it well. And he, he, he's, he said, who's, he kind of changed my perspective on that. He goes, who's they now, given he's Quentin Tarantino and he can actually make whatever the fuck he wants. And there <laughs> right. is a handful of people who can just kind of make whatever the fuck, you know, Clint Eastwood wasn't checking with anybody. He, he no. was just making whatever he wanted to make. Um, you know, Sylvester Stallone, whatever, but, I don't know. I think it's more that they're choosing not to make that stuff themselves because they of the virtue signal of it. You know, it's mm -hmm. there's nobody saying you can't do that, but they don't want to be the target of everyone online saying you guys aren't inclusive. Yes. Right? They want to they want to please and that woke angry mob. This is why I'm looking forward to um <laughs> Mel Brooks's uh History of the World Part 2 because he took on all the sacred cows, like he always did. But he himself said at the Aspen Comedy Festival a few years back that Blazing Saddles could not be made today. And he said, and it's not because I wouldn't want to make it. It's because people would tell me, no, you can't say that. Yeah, no, cer you can't certain, do that. certain studios today will not back certain content, whether it's because of the the jokes that are being made or the inclusion aspect, if you know you're not including, but... I think you'd still, if you're willing to let people criticize you unfairly, it's the part where they force the inclusion that really drives me nuts. Because mm -hmm. it's, I, I joked recently that if if an alien species watched television commercials here, they would assume that like ninety percent of the country was black and gay and uh, gender right. fluid and in biracial relationships and everything else, like. And not that it shouldn't be represented. Like, I, I, I really, I know people say I'm not real. I'm the least fucking racist person ever. But just do accurate, accurate representations of things. If you want to, you know, if the country is, what, 15, 20% black? I don't know what the percent, something. But it's I think it's like 13, 14, something like that. I thought that. it was like seven. I, I, I don't know. So let's say, call it 50, whatever it is. Call it 15. A, a certain percent Latino, that's fine represent that all over the place and the commercials and everything else. You don't have to go over the top in, in the opposite direction. And, um, they, I can just imagine a, an alien watching this going, I can't stop in this place. <laughs> yeah. They'd be like, these dudes are nuts. Yeah, But it's like you said, nuts. they're doing all that in the name of inclusion, but they're, they're actually doing the exact opposite. That's right. I, I, I do believe that they are, they're, excluding yeah they're excluding lot. not only are they excluding they're they're being um demeaning and racist toward the people they're using them as like props as tokens it's um, very insulting it's it very, really is and people don't see it that way it's, 
I I always say I would see it that way as as a Jewish person is the only example I could use. But if someone picked me for something specifically because they're like, you're Jewish and we need a Jew, I would feel very, you know, uncomfortable with that. It would feel very cringe to me. I'd be like, I don't want to be your Jew. I'm just John. Like, am I, am, you know what I mean? So right. I wouldn't. No, even... I, I've been there. I have been picked because I was Hispanic and I was the right Hispanic on top of that. And that was, you know, and and I looked at it and I was like, first of all, I don't understand why you need a, an Hispanic and why it has to be me. And then they explained, well, we want somebody that looks Hispanic, but not totally Hispanic. Right. And I'm like, OK, you lost me. And uh, this was while I was in high school. They wanted a like a promotional spot for the MIT program over at UT. And I was in the program because I was a minority uh, and I was interested in engineering. Boy, did I get this interested fast. I got out. (laughs) But in high school, they recruited heavily from the area I was at because I grew up in a predominantly Hispanic area. And so, but they were looking for people who looked Hispanic, but not completely Hispanic. And I'm like, I totally look Hispanic. What right. I, I don't understand what you're saying. It was the shade of my skin. I, I was like, first of all, it's insulting to everybody else. And second of all, you're doing it wrong. And this is why. Because if you're trying to get minorities interested in it, you should have your professors sell the product. You don't need me to come in and say, I would love to be an engineer and UT is perfect for me. And look at me. You, because you look like me, you can be one too. That's not the way it works. And um, uh, needless to say, I was dismissed from that gig. But, you know, th- this is this is something that a lot of programs refuse to acknowledge. Yeah. If you want to recruit people to your specific areas of education, have the people that teach those areas connect with those kids and everything and tell them, this is why I think this would be great for you. We get to do this, that and the other thing. And you can learn how to do it. If you reach a kid that way, you will get more recruits. That's why vocational schools are doing so well. They come to the kid and says, this is what we do. If Right. If you actually want diversity and you say there's a certain industry or whatever that enough people aren't exposed to, yeah, you have to expose them at a younger age. If that's actually the impediment, oftentimes it's just, you know, they always talk about men and women. Why are 90% of engineers men and all this? It's like, because women aren't into that shit. If they were into that shit... <laughs> They, right. They, they would choose to study it at a younger age. It's like there aren't less women. There's nobody saying to a girl in high school or college, hey, you're not allowed to take these engineering classes. No. Or to be a, or become an architect or something. Men are obsessed with things and like these. Other, the, the sexes are different. And then they go, well, as this engineering firm, we're going to hire 90% of our next hire is going to be women. Well, now you're pulling from. of the graduation pool because 95% of them are men, but it wasn't discrimination that caused that. I'm right. No, it it isn't. And, and it's a disservice to both sexes. Um, I, I, my aptitude is more towards, um, the, what I call the soft sciences, you know, anthropology, you know, psychology, that kind of thing. I, I dig that. I'd like to have my mind work in a way that, we extrapolate from clues around us and all that stuff. <laughs> my brother is not that way at all. My brother cannot stand psychology. He thinks that's just for kooky people. 
he's an architect. <laughs> so, right. Right. You know. There you go. And, and, and yes, there are exceptions to everything. I generalize a lot of people. But yeah, uh, Jordan Peterson always said that, that generally speaking, men are more into things and women are more into people. Yes. Right. And there are exceptions to that. I'm very yes, into people. You know, uh, Jordan Peterson himself pointed out that he's the exception because he's very into people and psychology more than things. So it, it depends. But yeah, it, if you look at industries that are very female dominated or industries that are very male dominant, it's very rarely that they don't have the exact same opportunities to pursue those fields. Yeah. And there's actually, they point out more women in medicine than men, which you could argue is a people field and the thing field, but there are actually more women in that. They always think of male doctors, but there's actually. Yeah, there's um, there's a lot. You know, there there was always that back in the fifties, whenever you had your TV shows, the doctors were men, the nurses were were female, and uh, I'll admit, uh, throughout my Harlequin reading career, which <laughs> I read a lot of them, a lot of the time. You know, the nurses married the doctors, but the doctors were always the males and the nurses were always the female. But that was something that well, was pushed um, in 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 fiction. Well, so but also in, in all fairness, and I, here's the problem with a lot of things. And we this is why we are doing all this stupid bullshit with the sexes and the genders and the races and religions and everything, because there was a time when men were dominant and chauvinistic from the standpoint of women actually were not allowed to pursue certain jobs. You could go back to before right. they could vote. And there used to be real systemic racism in this country where black people did not have the same rights and et cetera, et cetera. So because that stuff used to exist, they go, well, it existed back then. So now we need to do all this overcorrection in the other area, but you're addressing a problem that was already fixed. Yes. That's So it's like, I always say activists don't go home when they achieve their goals. So, you know, the civil rights movement of yesteryear had real things to accomplish and they accomplished them. And now these people protest and everything for, you hear people say women don't have, we need women's rights or we need black. It's like, uh, what I'm law? trying to figure out what rights I'm missing. Honest to God. I, right. the right to a male appendage, maybe, I don't know. I have there, no idea what right I'm missing because I have, I've tried really, really hard. And this was something that I actually discussed with a a friend of mine before the same-sex marriage act was was passed, you know, and he was a really big advocate of gay rights. And I asked him, I said, like, okay, what rights do you not have as a gay man? And, you know, he brought up marriage. I said, I'll give you marriage. Right. But keep in mind, marriage is a... There's a duality of marriage that a lot of people don't understand. There's the religious aspect and the state aspect. So, you know, you have to, uh, and I looked at him and said, you cannot bring religion into this because every religion is different. And what they have does not necessarily translate to the state. But statewide, you know, state-wise, yes, I'll give you, you don't have the right to get married to another person of the same sex. But you still have the right to get married to a person of the opposite sex. Right. So... You have to give me what else is it that you're fighting for? And he could not bring up anything. But it was always gay rights. And yeah, I no, pointed out right. to him. It's gay you know, rights, I, right. It should be gay rights, singular. Yeah. And, and I said, I said, you, I, I get what you're fighting for. And you know what? I'm total advocate because I want, 
I want my friend to be happy. And he was in a very committed relationship. And I'm, I'm very happy to report that they he still is and they're married now and everything. But the thing was, because it was a pluralistic issue, it took away from that particular issue. Now, once that right was established, they're still fighting for gay rights. And I'm like, right. you still need to define those rights that you don't have that I do. But yeah, that's the issue because, and whether it's women's rights, whether it's the racial equality stuff, because I'll say, look, I, I don't want, nobody wants a race or a gender or a religion to not have the same rights. So yeah, what they're doing is it's a protest without a request, right? There's We never had mm-hmm. that in the past. We never had people protesting just for the sake. They always had a specific request at the end of the sentence where you'd say, this is what we want. And we're going to keep protesting until you give it to us. But now, if they're protesting for racial equality or women's rights or whatever, correct. If you say, what specific law do you want changed? What specific thing are you at? They don't know. They're, they don't know. They can't give it to you. They're asking not for a shift in consciousness when the shift they're asking for doesn't even exist in the first place. They're asking people to shift the consciousness that they don't even have. Nobody was thinking about they they create this straw man argument and then they protest against themselves essentially. Sorry, God. No, that, I I totally agree. I being somebody who is considered a person of color, even though most people look at me as like, oh my God, you're so lily white. <laughs> but technically, I am. You know, one of the most insulting things for me is affirmative action today. I understand why. It came about. I understand why it was implemented. I get that. But those laws have now are now on the books. You cannot discriminate on the basis of all of these things. That Those are laws. Okay. And so I don't see why it's still necessary. And yeah. a lot of people, most of them, if not all, tend to be on the left side of the spectrum. And they tell me that I still need help. Regardless of what I'm trying to achieve, I still need government help because I cannot. What it tells me is that I'm too dumb to do it on my own. And that is insulting. When you actually realize that affirmative action is quota based so that people can get ahead without having to work for it. Yeah, that is insulting. And I've, I've tried explaining this to my family and they're like, well, we just don't see it that way. And I'm like, well, of course you don't because <laughs> you take advantage of it. Yeah. But then, you know, comes a time when you actually have to provide work. And when you don't, you know, you get canned. So, yeah, no, if there was a right, if there was a real systemic uh, discrimination going on, they would maybe need something like that. But, yeah, it is the soft bigotry of low expectations. It is. And they're so open about it now with every comment about how black people can't get IDs and don't have internets and, and um, lawyers oh, and accountants. That, and The whole ID thing, don't even get me started. I will, I'll probably just go screeching off on a rant. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you on it because, but what, to your point you were just making, what's more racist and insulting than saying, hey, you, because of the color of your skin, you don't have the ability to do something as simple as getting a photo ID the way a white person would. Yeah. You're basically calling them dumb. Dumb You're literally telling them you are 
just not intelligent right, because enough. if you say, well, what specific law is keeping you from doing Do you not have DMVs near your area, right? It's, you know, probably like $7 or something to get an ID. There uh, are several places. If you do not have the, uh, if you're a very low income, you can get a state ID for free. For free. Right. They, they so, will waive it. I know they waive it here in Texas, right, so say, and I believe Pennsylvania does too. Yeah, so they use these arguments and they say them, but then if you go, okay, great, what what specifically is preventing these people, or what they don't have an answer beyond that. It's they're just creating this fake issue where it does, and what they're doing, they're getting people to focus on. There, nobody was thinking about race and gender and equality and all these things. Like, think about in the nineties, right? Early nineties, midnight, late night, early early mid two thousands, even it didn't matter who was in office, left, right, whatever. There was not this discourse of everyone discussing race and gender all the time. Like they pretended there was a problem and then created the problem, but it's still not even a problem. Just a bunch of people yelling at each other about something that doesn't exist. Right. It, it's a it's a skill. Well, <laughs> they they. <laughs> Here's what it is. They have access like they didn't have before. So I think they probably would have tried to beat us over the head with some of this stupid stuff back in the day if they could. But how could they? There was no Internet and social media. We didn't have these devices all the time. We were just barely, you know, maybe getting on AOL or something. But certainly not back in the 90s. We had nothing. But but here's what I noticed. I'm curious if you agree because you're on social a lot, which is a lot of the divisiveness seems to only really exist in that social world, you don't see it in real life to the same degree. You know, how often do you experience people? Like, I guess these people that say, I don't talk to my family anymore because they voted for whoever. Like, that's so insane to me. That I have friends and family from insane. all over the spectrum. And we, we could hang out for a week and not get into one. This, you know, we just probably don't talk about that stuff. Like, we have... 10 million other things in common. Do you see it in real life? You think it just exists online? What's going on with that? Um, my family being Hispanic and Catholic, (laughs) that's to be rather large. (laughs) I have, I have over a hundred cousins on one side. That said, most of them tend to lean left because they, most of them are in Puerto Rico or in very urban areas here in the U S. So they don't lean as right as I do. Uh, however, the thought of writing anybody off simply because they voted for someone that you don't like, that has never entered their heads. Yeah. Not even my uncle, who is who thinks Che Guevara was a hero, okay? That's how far left he is. He would never, ever think of not having me at his table. Yeah, As a matter of fact, I remember we got into a fight over the fact that he adored Che Guevara. And I was telling him, it's like the guy was a terrorist. And I was, you know, if we got into it, hammer and tongs. We were literally at the dinner table. I was 16 at the time. Yeah, (laughs) That was in his house. And we were yelling at each other and everything. Guess what we did afterwards? I cleared the table. I washed the dishes. We went outside. We had, you know, we had a beer. I didn't have a beer. He did, but you know that's yeah, what we you're, did because you're because you're normal people. Yeah, and I I relate to what you were just saying so much because my family's the same as a, a Jewish person whose whole family's from New York. You can imagine how many liberals are. <laughs> we just had 
my grandma's 98th birthday and a bunch of cousins and people came down you know 90 percent of the people in that room i'm sure were were uh and she was adorable big lefties thank you <laughs> and first of all nothing nothing even came up if it does yeah like yeah i've had political debates with family and stuff like that yeah but the idea that you would then dislike or, or hate the person who's your family member who you know as a person I see a lot of people online saying, I haven't talked to my son in seven years over a political issue. Or I haven't talked that to my... makes no sense. So how can somebody view it on that level? When did we insert politics into every single thing in life, including now the level of love for your own family members? Well... It has been very insidious, but it has been uh, seeping into the country's psyche for well over two decades that I have that I have actually seen. And it is a tool that's being used in order to break up the family unit. Now, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but in my studies of other countries where the state is the primary driver as opposed to the individual, the family units there are dictated by the state, and usually they are broken up. They're usually not a cohesive family unit of having two parents that that are in charge of the children, okay, and in charge of their education and all that stuff. And you see it even in countries like Germany. Um, I don't know if you recall, but there was a German couple that fled to the U.S. because Germany would not allow them to homeschool. And the U.S. sent them back. Oh. Uh, the Obama administration sent them back because they didn't want to deal with that imbroglio or whatever. And so they went back and they had to put the kids in state schools. They were not allowed to homeschool their children. And I'm not talking about one or two kids. I'm talking about like eight. <laughs> I mean, it was a large family. But that is one thing that I have seen Every time that the government wants more and more control over the individual, the first step starts with breaking up the family unit. And they don't do it all at once. It's usually one sector by sector. And in our case here in the United States, what I've noticed is the sectors are by race. And that's how it starts. Yeah. Um, and once you've achieved one in one sector, you move on to the next one. And the one that I see being affected right now is the Latino sector. The Latin sector is now the one that the state is going after to break up that family unit. Because even though a lot of people tend to think that most Latin people tend to vote left, no, they, they, they are very conservative. I, and, I, I talk about that all the time. I'm down in South Florida with, in the, with the Cuban community, who everyone knows is oh, yeah. mostly right. So you mm -hmm. see a lot of that. But yeah, in the last two elections actually... Uh, and that's not what they were expecting. I wonder if they would have treated all that immigration the same. You've seen a move to the right. Yes. And the weird thing in was here in Texas, the district that I grew up in has never been red. It's always been blue. Always. Yeah. And this this past election, it went red. And it wasn't a light red. It wasn't even pink or even just a little shade of purple. Huh. It was solid red. And I asked my dad, I said, Dad, what I don't understand. You know what he said in his in his way of speaking in Spanish? He said basically that the Hispanics there that were there legally were, were fed up with the illegal bullshit. 
And so they yeah. voted red. Uh, Dade, I was like, Dade County, Miami, it was almost a tie, I believe, which was was <laughs> yeah. pretty wild. Yeah, like you said, um, and I see that too. Latino people lead conservative lives. It's something I tell you say about Jewish people a lot too. As many, you know, two third liberal, mm-hmm. they lead conservative lives for themselves. You know, you talk about family and education and those kind of things. But it is kind of that condescending idea of it's okay for us, but like, let's help everybody. Everyone needs help, right? They don't realize how condescending it's back to what we were talking about before. They want everyone, you guys need help, right? To do this. Like, let us all help you because you're not capable of it for X, Y, or Z. Seems to be the sentiment behind a lot of this liberalism. Like, we need to help everybody. You know, one of the things that I remember back in the 90s was the um, Newt Gingrich uh, had the red tide in the, in, in the house and, and whatnot, and they decided to do welfare reform. And for the two years before they, you know, the house flipped back or whatever, that welfare reform did more to put people back in the workplace. And actually, it was a hand up, not a handout. And there were a lot of people that actually achieved far more than if they had just stayed, you know, in, in welfare. And I'm not saying that welfare is bad. When we first came to the States, my dad, we were on welfare for the first year. And, but my dad worked really, really hard to get us out of welfare. I mean, he was working 16 hour days and it drove my mom nuts because he wasn't home, but he was just adamant, you know, and I've seen a lot of my friends in school whose parents did have welfare but for a couple of years and then got out of it. But I see relatives in Puerto Rico who see it as an income. Yeah. I'm, I'm not even kidding here when I say if Puerto Rico were to become the 51st state, it would be the largest welfare state. That's how many people there are on welfare over there. And a lot of people don't realize that. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, in this country, it, it was never intended to be you know, a third of the country on, on, on the government dole or whatever it, it's become. Yeah. And, you know, not, not even factoring in everyone on Social Security living so much longer and everything else, the amount of people being supported by government and tax dollars, I'm not saying people shouldn't get. By the way, and people should get welfare, too. That's the thing. The people that actually need it as it was intended to be for the time they need it for. But you're right. I, I always think back to... When I was in my 20s, I worked for a company that ended up going out of business. They went bankrupt and the company went away. And so I got unemployment. I think it lasted like a year or something like that. But, you know, it was like 80% of what I was made. It was a, it was a decent amount, the unemployment. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I remember at the time specifically thinking, I'm definitely not taking a job for anything close to this amount. If, if I'm receiving this, like, why would I go work? all these hours a day and just to make the same amount. And as soon as you get the job, the unemployment goes away. Right. So it's like, I might as well collect this until I don't have it anymore. And then I can get a job or it has to be way more than this amount. But yeah, why would anyone be motivated to earn money when they're not? It would, it takes a very strong, special kind of person to just on principle say, I'm going to go work and make the same amount or less than I can get by not working. I do believe that is true. My father is that kind of person. Um, as a matter of fact, the reason that we came 
to the States was that he didn't like what was going on where he was working. And instead of putting in his two weeks notice to his supervisor, who happened to be his cousin, um, (laughs) he went to San Juan and demanded to see the vice president and quit right then and there and told him why and then walked out of the office and drove back home. And it's a two hour drive. My house where I lived in Puerto Rico to San Juan, okay? My dad was adamant to make sure that the head, the part that where he was working at, knew what was going on. And, you know, to give my dad's cousin credit, it wasn't his fault. But my dad had tried fixing the problem and the cousin said, no, we need to keep to the status quo, blah, 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 blah. And my dad was just not going to have it. You know, he is a, he has his principles, you know? So when he qualified for welfare, he understood it was help, but he did not want to be dependent on that help. So he tried to get out of it, you know, and it is a point of pride for some people. I I admire that so much. I I think also the older generation, see, that's the thing. They shifted the perception to people of what's acceptable, right? Because I think of my grandfathers, they would have never, like you said, they would have never wanted some sort of handout or to, it would have uh, felt shameful to them, but they removed that shame aspect for everybody where they just kind of made it the norm. And it's like, Hey, yeah, we, we shifted from that to entitlement kind of mentality. Well, and I think and, it's also cause they waste our money so much too. It became, you know, it's supposed to be a representative government, right? And our tax mm-hmm. dollars are supposed to be going toward the things that benefit us as a society, but it, it became this, adversarial type relationship where now we're just kind of like, oh, you know, fuck you, give me my money. You guys are terrible. Anyway, you're wait, I, we, you know, giving you 40% of our paycheck my whole life. Like, where is it going? We're all in debt. Yeah, there is absolutely no accountability. There used to be, right. you know, um, but there is no accountability now. Yeah, it should feel like we're all on the same team. What would make sense is whatever money you put into Social Security, you should be able to withdraw at when you retire that should have been put in a place where but that's not the way it was set up to work at all and then it became a slush fund you know i well, think it, back in the 90s it, be, it you know they they decided to make it a slush fund and now they're like oh it's gonna go away in 2035 we're about to go broke blah 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 well whose fault is it not mine not yours we were paying like the government told us to under penalty but it's not well, our it's, fault that we don't have the money there yeah, there's been no money in it forever. They, But they should have also been gradually raising the age of it over time so that it didn't feel drastic. It, it, you know, as the age of work increased, the age of retirement as went up, the, and the lifespan. Lifespan, exactly. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with what's going on in France right now, Ooh. but the French have, because it is a socialist country, their benefits are are more weighty than ours, I would say. Well, France is about to raise the retirement age to 70. And people are losing their minds. They've taken to the streets. They're burning stuff up. They're breaking windows. They're protesting left and right. And the government can't understand that. Well, when you have actually acclimated and raised generations to believe that they can retire at the age of 58, 55 or whatever, and the rest of their lives, the government will pay for when you push that to 70, they're going to get mad. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, they should just gradually every every five years made it a year more and a year more or whatever. We should have been doing that too, just to compensate. It was all true. the it was all the boomers in the workforce. And now they're all uh You know, our quality long. of life has improved dramatically with a lot of uh, medicinal Yes. What's the word I'm looking for? You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, no, that too. I but, listen, they say kids today could live to be 150, 200 years old, kids being born now. You know, when you're mm -hmm. factoring in the types of treatments and medicines that will be around when they're 30, 40, 50, 70, 80, when they're old people. Um, yeah, what are you going to do to support people till they're 200? I mean, it's some Well, point. I mean, look at your grandma. And my dad just turned right. 91. Um, uh, and, you know, his mother was one of three siblings. And she died at the youngest, 96. Her brother died at 101 and her sister died at 104. Wow. And this was like way before <laughs> all of these breakthroughs, you know, and all that stuff. But we have had good medicine, <laughs> good breakthroughs. So. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's only exponential and the stuff that's going to be around, you know, with all the, the gene, I, I hope, I hope the gene therapy stuff didn't get a bad name. With all this, not to not to start talking about that, but I, it's one of the things that actually bothers me about it because I've always been kind of into that stuff and fascinated mm -hmm. by it, and we really kind of are on the cusp of not only being able to cure, you know, heart disease and cancers and all these things. I always say future civilizations are going to look back on us and go, "Holy shit, they were dying of cancer." These people were dying of heart disease, like they couldn't just grow new heart tissue, they couldn't just grow new lung tissue. They're going to think we were so primitive. They're, these people were paralyzed. They're going to, they're going to, like how we look at medieval times is so, because they're going to be living to 200. Well, these people only lived to 80 and they got cancers and it must have been so scary, but it's, it's all the perception. But yeah. You also I, have to contend with the fact that there's a reason sometimes um, life is a delicate balance. It really yeah. is. And it's not perfect. Human beings are not perfect. We are not born perfect physically, emotionally, spiritually, for any reason, mentally, you know, we're just, we're just not. Um, and I can see the advantages to gene therapy. I can see the advantages to improvements so much so that you have cured uh, cancers and you have, you know, cures for stuff like cystic diseases and things like that. But with that comes a huge price because, the longer you live, the more you deplete resources and the larger the population becomes. There is always a delicate balance to be had between them. We've had Paul Ehrlich screaming for decades about the population bomb and how we're going to run out of food in 1973 or whatever. Or I don't know. What it was. Well, now they say we're underpopulated. And exactly. And, and so there's always going to be that state of fear because governments need to have that state of fear with yeah. their citizenry. It's that's the way they get shit done, really. But, you know, I'm not a big proponent of the whole gene therapy to cure everything. You cannot cure everything. You can seek to cure everything, sure. but you're not going to be able to simply because no one we're not clones. We're not one being that sure, you know, that kind of thing. So and I know that's kind of rambly for yeah. me and everything. It's just, it's a huge rabbit hole to go down in. Well, a lot of this, a lot of the <laughs> cell regeneration, you know, we're already growing organs and 
lab settings, for example. So the idea that you would need a heart transplant in the future, for example, you wouldn't. You would ideally grow your own heart with your own perfectly matched cells and tissue. You know, they can actually do that now. They can grow a human John Katz heart on a tray, right? Yeah. They, they just haven't nailed down the part where it, it grows exactly in my body as it should. and and. But like I said, it's tricky. Because oh, it's with that with that kind of advancement comes <clears throat> but then what, do a we lot not of money. Do it? Yeah, and, and and people will have to pay for it, so it's not going to be available to everybody right. because it'll be very expensive. And sure. so then then you're going to have the people that are going to be like, oh, well, it's not equitable. Right. That comes back into play, and you know it it's just I, I love using the word. It's an imbroglio waiting to happen. Well, look, a heart a heart <laughs> transplant is not available to everyone. You go on a list, right? That's you correct. You have to wait. So be similar. You'll have to go on this list for us to grow you your heart. Yeah. And it's, it would be it would also be an advantage if you can actually have your own heart grown right. rather than wait for someone yeah, who uh, passed away, or you know, um, even look at look at how uh, that people are paralyzed, right? Because mm-hmm. we don't know how to yet, but they say soon we will effectively regenerate nerve tissue. For example, so if you sever the nerves in your spine, well, now I'm in a wheelchair the rest of my life. At some point, they're going to go. That's crazy that that guy sat in a wheelchair his whole life. Now we can just regrow his spinal cord nerve cells or however that works, right? And the technology that we're implanting in ourselves. Playing this whole thing out over a long period of time, hundreds of years, thousands of years, 50,000 50, years, a million years, we, we would, if we survive as a species, I always feel like we'd have to go back to some sort of communal living because A, we will all be living hundreds of years, and then B, there'd be nothing for us to do, Right. You know, you're already going, they're showing these fast food places where there's no, there's no person at all. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, everything yeah, is it's all automated. Everything's becoming automated. I said in a hundred years, it'll be rare that a person prepares your meal. Right. At most chains, it's going to be some robotic system in the kitchen cooking all the food. And then that goes for every industry. So we'll have nothing to do all day. Most of us, other than the people that program the robots, and we'll <laughs> all be living forever. Eh, I think that's a boring life. Personally speaking, I would not want to live forever. <laughs> I kind of like, no, I'm done here. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't be able to maintain this structure that we have now. No, you did bring up a good point that we would have to go back to a communal type of living. It and one of the things that I always found fascinating was the kibbutz. For me, the kibbutz was almost perfect. And I studied how they worked. I studied how people actually communed in it and how they you know, interacted with each other and everything. And there have been a lot of communes that have come and gone, but the kibbutz stays, you know, pretty constant. There was one thing that I noticed that they do differently than every other commune that I've seen. And that's the religious aspect is central to the kibbutz. It really is. And I found another one that works that way. And those are like monasteries. They're pretty much work in the same manner. The religion is also central to that. When you take away that 
spiritual pillar, so to speak, and have it done on another basis. When you don't have that higher um, spirituality, that higher being that you look up to, that you want to emulate, that you, you know, pray to or whatever, it doesn't work. I've seen communes that there was one called the Venus Project, and I think it was in, in Florida, as a matter of fact. And my niece was looking into it. And so I said, you know what? Let me look into it for you because this is the stuff I studied when I was in college. And she's like, yeah, I would love for that. At least, and, and Aggie almost <laughs> slipped. <laughs> yeah. I would love for you to look that up and blah, 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 and all this stuff. And so I did. And I, I sat her down and I said, let me tell you why it's not going to work. And I started to enumerate. This thing was set up. Uh, you know, you you come to live here and this is what you're going to contribute to everybody. But this is the only thing that you're going to get out of it is this, this and the other thing. You cannot ask for more, you know. So if you are somebody with a high metabolism, I'm sorry, your share of food will be this and only this. Your share of water will be this and only this. However, you will be required to provide eight hours of work in this area or this area or this other area. And most people would be okay with that if the, what I call recompense, the, you know, whatever you get out of it is commensurate with the eight hours of work, but they were not doing that. And so I was telling her on paper, they look, this looks great. I don't give it a month. Yeah. And she was like, really? I said, I'm, I'm telling you right now, I know that you want to live in a commune. She's a total hippie. And I I get that you want that in your life. And believe me, I would love to be able to tell you that this will work. But I can tell you right now, I don't even give it a month. It lasted 27 days. Yeah, it defeats the purpose with all that stuff going on. They they become a cult very quickly. A lot of these communes. And the thing is, but even in cults, when they have a commune, they still have that spiritual aspect. They have the one guy (laughs) who is their leader. Yeah, I think, like you said, and, with with the commune atmosphere, you need you need the common cause, right? Yes, you can't. And if in, you have in a lot of individual case, behavior, it's going to fall apart. Yeah, in this case, they didn't have that top of the pyramid, so to speak. Right. Uh, the guy in charge was actually, you know, you had to pay to be in this commune. On top of that, but he wasn't. You know, you could not ask where the money was going. He said the money goes towards everybody's, you know, food. The the stuff that we grow, the, um, you know, the places that you're going to sleep and blah, blah, blah. And I'm going places that you're going to sleep. So I looked that up. Yeah. It was this just long shed with cots in it. And I'm like, yeah, she couldn't last five minutes in yeah, here. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, it's, I could see the appeal of that type of life versus all this other weird structure and shit, you know, people spending the majority of their waking hours inside somebody else's box that they built so that they can come home exhausted and make themselves a crappy dinner, wake up at early in the morning, do it all over again. Uh, you know, out here, living out here in the country, I know that there are some people that, Hey, you know, if you need eggs, yeah. they trade, you know, it's like, I have, you know, I just went deer hunting. I have some deer meat. Can I trade it for like two dozen eggs? Well, and people I, I, trade all the time. You know, that kind of thing works yeah. too. And just just at a base level, the idea that the time and energy that you're expending during the day is for you and your family and your well-being. 
you're not giving it to someone else so that they can then give you a check every couple of weeks and you can hand some so that it's like this whole game you've entered into. You're you're just living and, and being your own life. Something you mentioned, um, have you heard of these? I'm going to butcher this because I, I don't remember the examples, but have you heard of like the blue zones? I think they call them blue zones throughout the world. They did a study years ago. Again, for anyone that's familiar with blue zones, I'm probably butchering this, but they lo- they found... I don't know what it was, seven or eight locations, I think, throughout the world where people live way longer than most other uh, places. Yeah. So they uh, did a study to put together the common factors in those areas. And aside from the obvious stuff about, uh, you know, eating healthier, you know, a lot of it was, I think, nutrition based. A lot of it was based on people that have to walk more. So there was a lot of that built in. But um, there was a higher communal aspect in all of them. And I'm not, uh, I don't claim to be religious at all. In fact, I, I think I'm a very spiritual person. And I definitely believe, and I won't get into all that. But point being, <laughs> there was a very high religious aspect in most of these places too. Mm-hmm. Um, so they moved around a lot. There was a lot of communal activity going on. And there was a lot of religious activity going on. And it's like an extreme difference. It's like a whole extra decade longer that they're living yeah it's not one or two years it's it's quite a bit it's like 10 quite years a big chunk. I, I wanted to ask you along those lines i was looking at your uh i think it's a wordpress wordpress uh-huh. link on twitter and i see other <laughs> stuff you posted you you do uh like furniture restoration i do painting and all that kind of stuff <laughs> it's, it's interesting because kind of along of what we were just saying i wish i could remember this guy's name because i quote him all that i'm gonna have to look him up one day because I saw an interview years ago and the guy was saying how, and it goes along with a lot of what I believe that the human evolution, we've been doing things a certain way for, you know, hundreds of thousands of years. And we just switched to do it differently. He said that everybody should be doing one of two things, if not both using their hands to build stuff or make stuff or manipulate things with their hands and plant things in the ground. And I do neither of those. I'd love to have a garden or something. But it does seem like people that have those type hobbies or jobs even are healthier, more balanced. It's like we're doing the things we were meant to be doing instead of this weird new world we created for ourselves. Like it. I I can see that. I don't know if you were. Did you ever watch the movie Wally? Yeah, of course. Okay, so you saw how the people lived in the ship. Yeah. They were very sedentary. They they did the little the scooter thing and all of their food was, you know, a, a, a milkshake or whatever it was. Um, they never did any activity. They became gelatinous, you know. I mean yeah. so doing stuff with your hands, it forces it it actually accentuates your dexterity. Um, and the reason that gardening is so popular with people is that it's you're doing a massive amount of cardio just you know weeding just putting stuff in the ground (laughs) i was surprised but even on a spiritual (laughs) level right like we've been putting stuff in the ground and growing it and consuming it Mm -hmm. since we've been around as a species and now 90 percent of us or more probably don't eat a thing that we grow or kill 
No, there are there are two camps when it comes to agriculture. There's the camp that says that it's its greatest invention by man, and then there's the one that says it's the greatest failure by man. So you you have those two camps in 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 anthropology. I happen to think it's the greatest thing that man has ever done because we're eating. Yeah. <laughs> you know, before then we were hunters and gatherers. We were at the mercy of whatever was growing out there, and if there was if there was a drought. You were screwed. Yeah. So, um, in, in my opinion, agriculture was probably the the greatest advancement that mankind ever did. I don't say humankind; I say mankind. <laughs> I don't. I don't buy that timeline. By the way, you know, I've heard enough scientists now speak on it on other shows and stuff that say that's that's horseshit. The hunter gatherer thing. Um, <laughs> no, it is. It's hor- like we we did have some large extinction event probably around that time. So we was go oh, everybody mm-hmm. before then. No one figured out how to fence in animals or, or grow their own stuff. A lot of people now are saying we could have been doing that 100,000 years ago. The idea that you would have the same brain, you know, they always say, well, we had this enlightenment or whatever, but it was the same brain, chemi- chemically speaking, that that guy couldn't figure out, hey, if we break this tree down, we can put something over our head permanently or we can prevent this animal from leaving or... But one vital fact, things didn't grow all year round. You had to move to where the food was and you had to move to where the herds went. And that's why we were very nomadic at that time. That's why that whole hunter-gatherer thing is, in my opinion, a thing. However, you are right. They did catch on to the fact that, hey, this is a seed, okay? Right. And say, for example, Ugg and his wife, Thag, were eating something and they spit out seeds yeah and they were they covered the refuse with dirt and all of a sudden like three or four days later they see something sprout up the idea would come you know well and 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 if, uh, if these things existed in certain civilizations throughout the globe there would be no evidence of it for us today after all these ice ages and everything and it wouldn't have been able to spread throughout the world and be a widespread thing but there's just no way i don't think there weren't more advanced civilizations than we they're finding evidence of that now. the ages of no no there there were there were definitely i'm not discounting that it it was a a leap you know this wasn't 2001 a space odyssey with the 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 monolith out there you know saying okay now you can advance yeah no they act like all of a sudden we stopped wandering everyone picked it all up the agriculture that Somehow they no. think we we hunted all these giant uh, mammoths and things to existence, like a hundred species of these mammals. They think we hunted the whole globe out of existence. No. That doesn't make a lot of this stuff makes no sense under a modern microscope. But yeah, um, it, it's funny because you know the 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 greatest dinosaur predator of them all was you know Tyrannosaurus rex and everything all of the evidence that we have found of T-Rexes is only in one area in Montana. That's it. (laughs) It's like the dude had like this tiny little square footage to like be great. in. you know, we turned him into the supervillain through, uh, (laughs) he's gotten quite the rep. (laughs) Yeah, no, I was actually just reading. It's funny because I was watching the new Jurassic park and they introduced another like bigger, meaner, dinosaur and i looked it up and it is some other new species they discovered i don't know 10 20 years ago that's like 
similar to a T-Rex, but like 2,000 pounds heavier and a bigger jaw and everything. Who knows what was going on back? Well, you know, a lot of people don't. Um, we extrapolate. I'm, I, I've seen where they've extrapolated an entire dinosaur from like three bones. <laughs> and yeah. I'm like, how? <laughs> you no. I've, I've never been able to figure out. And of course, everybody knows the whole uh, Brontosaurus uh, thing that it turned out that it was put together wrong and it didn't ever exist. It's an apatosaurus is the, the true animal and everything. So there's never been a brontosaurus. But, you know, we, we still have brontosaurus in the little books and, you know, whatever. It has fired the imagination of so many people as witnessed by, you know, Michael Crichton bringing yeah. forth Jurassic Park and, and everything. And well, what has sparked from that. currently now talking about and we already actually can do this with the more recent extinct species. It just comes down to regulation, but bringing bringing some of those back um, mm -hmm. because they do have the DNA to do that. I don't know if they could do. I feel like they probably could at this point somehow do it with the dinosaur, like they did in Jurassic Park. But they could certainly do it with, you know, I think a they can. They can do it with like several. Yeah. They have um, specifically. I believe mammoth, yeah. bison, and because that stuff I was only what, you know, what 10, 11,000 years ago, something like that. It's not that, but it was you know yeah. these specific items were discovered under ice and everything, yeah. so the conditions were exactly a, a lot better. Yeah, than they have the, actual tissue, right? Correct. Yeah, I mean, what's stopping? I always think, what's stopping other? You know, we can clone people right now, for example. A lot of people don't realize, like, you could clone me right now. We clone horses all the time right or they throughout the world do um yeah let's not forget dolly the technology <laughs> does exist well people clone their dogs all the time now too uh who was it barbara streisand or somebody someone like cloned their same nuts. dog like three four times <laughs> for a couple hundred grand a pop or something like that so we can clone mammals right now and i always think there's got to be countries like yeah we have these laws and regulations here but you're telling me in like north korea they're not cloning people and secret experiments and things like that. You know, that. I would not be surprised Saudi if it Arabia. wasn't happening in China, at least. At least China, China has the, the technology, the wherewithal, the laboratories, yeah. all of that. Why wouldn't they be cloning things and doing all that? Now it's get, it gets expense. weird, too. <laughs> I think that's the big one. It's the expense, but now you're go getting back to the genetic engineering and stuff. You know, not even just cloning we we are having the ability now when people have babies, you know, picking traits. That's only amping up mm -hmm. more. We are gonna kind of all become the same, right? Like, if that does become universally available, nobody's gonna choose the shitty features anymore, right? Like everyone. No, no, that was you know, and it's amazing because that that has been a thing in fiction for a very long time. It's real now. And now it's and now it's real. And I don't know if you ever watch um, Twilight Zone, yeah, uh, the old ones. But there was an episode called Number Eight Looks Just Like You. And it was a society where when you turned a certain age, you could choose what body and face you wanted. Right. And there were several, you know, you, you got a catalog, you know, and you would look. And it was it was so weird because this young girl was like questioning everything. Like, why? I why do I need to change? I like me. And the mom who looked her age, the same as the age as, as a girl, had 
and they were always dressed in leotards. I thought that was kind of weird. But her name was right here. She had to wear her name because she was numbered. She had chosen number 12. Right. And there were a lot of 12s out there. So you couldn't tell them apart. And I think when you bring that up, you know, it's like now we can choose traits and all that stuff and everything. Yeah. Now you're now you're messing with something that you're like you. You have to write. <laughs> the funny part is that I think about with that too is it would it would be you would know what generation and what era people are from because everything's a fad, right? So oh, yeah. you know, in the nineties they would have all been look like Cindy Crawford and Claudia Schiffer and all these people, you know, the tall supermodel and then Listen, at some point not gonna lie, I wouldn't mind looking like her right now. <laughs> yeah. But then at some <laughs> like point they look like now. <laughs> it would have all right, but then they all would have switched to like the Kardashian with the with the, you know the cur you know understand yeah people yeah, would still be choosing it. based on these weird fads that were going on at the time and uh that's also bad because like you said it's a fad and then the fad goes away you're stuck with that you want to change it again but you can't unless you get cloned <laughs> well and people could technically do that. that's what i'm saying i think people would want to clone themselves or they'd want to say hey let me clone my grandfather as my son for example, or my father is my son who I lost and I loved and was the perfect man. And I lost him young. Like, let me have my son be the same person as my dad. Where That, that was kind of one of the running threads in the film AI. Where did the ethics play into that? Like, should that not be allowed? That's tricky. And you're asking someone who doesn't like the idea of genetic picking and choosing. Yeah. And that's my Catholicism coming into play that is my whole you know god is the creator man just happens to replicate so i don't think you know, you'd even get see it's interesting based on what you just said i i think our our souls and our consciousness are like their own thing so let's say you did someone did want to clone their dad and say i'm going to make this child genetically equivalent i'm going to implant the embryo using my dad's dna whatever they wouldn't end up with their dad Physically, obviously, they would ever, but Correct. to me, that's you're still gonna whatever soul was meant to be inside of that body, whatever consciousness, be a completely different personality and likes and mannerisms and everything else. That that's the part that would interest me most. How close is no? This? That is true. If you cloned Michael Jordan, would he even want to pick up a basketball? Like maybe he'd be really into bees and and he he would be a nerd. You know what I mean? Like. Yes. how much of the physical manifestation f then factors into who the person is that that would be the part that i'd be most fascinated by that's where the nature versus nurture comes in yeah and you know say you decided to clone michael jordan but you didn't you know you put him in learning piano and violin and learning to do needlepoint and um, raising bees, right? You know, uh, having an apiary out there. If you did that, that it would not be Michael Jackson. It would just look Michael like Michael Jordan. Jackson I, or Jordan. I'm I'm curious though. <laughs> even if you let him like play basketball, like the thing. Here's the thing. The thing that made Michael Jordan the greatest basketball player ever wasn't just his physical attributes. It was who he was as a person. That made everything you hear about the guy ever is that he just outworked and outgrinded not every everybody. 
um, you know, the Tiger, I, I think one Tiger of Woods the, and these guys, it, it had more to do with who they were. Yeah. I, and one of the best commercials that Michael Jordan ever did was I missed the three pointer 279 times. I missed this one. I missed that one, you know, hundreds of times. I missed this one hundreds of times, you know, over. And because I missed them so much, I succeeded. And that was his point. You need to keep trying. You need to keep moving forward. And he applied that to every aspect of his life, not just basketball. And I think that's what made him success, even outside of basketball. There's so many people out there that have done, have tried different things, you know, just because, hey, I'm going to try and do this and they'll go out and do it. I thought I had a very boring life until I, until I started <laughs> Because, you know, you asked me to be on your podcast and I was like, I'm a boring person. I just, uh, you know, I, <laughs> I don't I don't do anything yeah. exciting. And then I started thinking of all the stuff that I did because I had not tried them. And I ha I actually have a list. It's not with me, but it's a list of things to do before I die. Bucket and I, I started looking, you know, through that list going, I actually did this and I did this other thing and I did this. How many women do you know that at the age of 16, they went into a shark cage and were submerged in water and had the little shark going all around you? Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I did that. <laughs> no, I, I love this topic. I was just talking about that with someone the other day. We rarely we rarely give ourselves credit the way we should and look back or go like, wow, I'm really amazed or proud or whatever that I did that or I accomplished that. And then the other thing you just touched on which I've, I've been ranting a lot about lately. It's because even when you say, well, you know, I have this pot or whatever, I've been thinking of myself that way with the pot, that that thinking of, I, you know, that you hear people call, call imposter syndrome. You hear actors talk about that a lot, right? Mm-hmm. They look around and they think everyone else has this thing or knows this thing that they don't. Right. It's like they're, they're doing something special, but I think everyone feels that way about themselves it's a it's a bad trap we get into because there is. is no secret like we're all as worthy of you know expressing our gifts and talents and thought as anybody but yeah it's it's and getting it, over the hurdle of thinking just, of yourself that way it, it's not just that you we all have the george bailey syndrome right we don't know how many lives we have touched until they tell us you know and i'm not one to ask you know, have I helped you in any way? Have I done anything? I just, I do. I had a very dear friend that suffered a, a huge loss. Actually, I had three of them in one week and I was there for each one of them, but none of them knew each other. So they didn't, they did not know that I was helping so many with everything that was going on. And uh, one of them reached out to me and she asked me, you know, how I was doing. And I was like, that's, not important right now. Right. right now, the focus is on you, blah, 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 and all that stuff. And uh, she lost her husband, who was a dear friend of mine. And I was helping her through the grieving process. And I, I still am, you know, just she's starting to adjust, which is great. And she reached out to me just yesterday and she said, okay, now I need to talk about you. And I was like, well, there's nothing going on or anything. It's like, no, no. There is something going on and I can tell. And, you know, so I, I did tell her, you know, that the loss of our, uh, my friend wasn't the only loss that I suffered that week. But my 
bigger, the thing that was making me question myself was, was I doing enough for them? And I didn't know because I, I don't get that back. And it wasn't until I was telling her that I don't know if I did enough for you. And she just for 20 minutes told me how much I had helped her. I mean, she didn't even take a break from breathing. I don't think she just kept going. And I was like, I did that much for you. She's like, you always underestimate how much you do for others. And it's true. We always do. We always underestimate how much we do for others because we're just, we naturally just channel, you know, trying to support other people, not thinking, what am I going to get out of this? Because that's, that's not how we think, you know, we don't think that way. We automatically think we need to help our friend, you know, and everything until things are settled and then things can go back to normal-ish. And, you know, she spent 20 minutes telling me everything that I did for her and how much she appreciated everything that I did and all that stuff. And then she finally pauses and says, okay, how can I help you with your grieving? And I did not realize that I had been grieving for three people and did not know it. Right. You know, I, I honestly didn't know that I was grieving for so many. And, you know, and I told her, I said, I honest to God, I don't know how to grieve. I, I've, I've never had the opportunity to grieve because every time something happened in my family, you know, we had loss of my brother-in-law. That one was really hard. And I had to be there for Brother. his mother and I had to be there for his brothers and I had to be there for everybody, you know, and I was, I wasn't given the opportunity to, to grieve. I still haven't been, this was almost 10 years ago. So I was telling her that's something I've never been able to do. And it's not because the opportunity is not there and it's not because I don't want to, or I don't feel like it. It's just that I never learned how. And that was a thing that a lot of people don't know. You have to learn to grieve. You have to learn how to express that grief. And, you know, one of the things that I told her, she repeated back to me. And she said, you told me something when Lauren passed away. That was her husband. And it stuck with me. You know, grief is just love that you can no longer express. And I think that's why you have a tough time. Because you have always been able to express your love to everyone. And now that you can't, you don't know how to not do that. So, you know, it's these little connections yeah. that you have with other people. You don't know how much you mean to someone because you don't expect to be told. But you do you, you do put forth, you know, your love, your affection, your friendship to someone who needs it until such time as they can pay you in kind. But you don't know when that's going to happen. No. And you cannot rely on it either. No, it, it, and I think we need to have that kind of self, self-worth self in our lives so much. Like you say, you don't always get the feedback or you think it's much easier to look at other people objectively and what other people are doing. It is really nice when you when you hear that from somebody, though. It is really nice to even have somebody ask how you are in a real way because it's, it does seem like that. Yeah. A lot of the people like you who are always helping and doing for others – you know, and you always seem so strong and capable. Those are the people that get asked how they're doing least, right? Because it's like right. everyone thinks, oh, they're okay. They're running around helping everybody else. Yeah. Um, yeah it's you, not always that way. 
<laughs> no, and you do have to stop and give that. This is like my main thing. Like, like you have to stop and give yourself that love also and and often first, right? Yeah, the people that help the most, they don't stop enough and give themselves the compassion. To yeah, anything. to be fair, some some of us don't know how. Right. We just because we it's not in our nature to do that for ourselves. It's in our nature to do it for everyone else, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, I've I've been talking about this as long as I, I interviewed an author that wrote a book about all this stuff too. Yeah, we don't know how. We were never shown how, we never learned how. And uh, yeah, you have to kind of teach yourself how to do that. It really is an effort thing. Yeah, as adults, we can do it in a way that we couldn't, but we never learned it. So I've been big on that lately because I realize it, it has been a huge impediment in my own life. And not that I'm some big, let me help everybody else person, but I still wasn't giving myself anywhere near the self-compassion and love and all that. I'm still very hard on myself in my own weird ways. We're all so hard on ourselves unnecessarily. We are our worst critics. We really are. <laughs> There's a real type of self-love that people don't give themselves. I look around and I don't see most people doing that the right way. People feel sorry for themselves, and that's yeah. not the same thing. So they're no. giving their attention and energy to themselves, but it's in a woes me kind of way, not a let me really love myself kind of way. I have, I have two dear friends and they're polar opposites in that regard. Um, one is always woe is me and all that stuff. And she's constantly posting that stuff on social media. And it's, you know, I, I try helping her. I try to be there for her. And I try to actually, because she does lean on the, on the Asperger's spectrum. I try to guide her into a more positive outlook. I have the other one who is a constant ray of sunshine for everybody. And she is the type that says, I failed at this today. And she will tell you how her day went so badly and everything. And she will end it. But you know what? Out of this, I got that. And for that, I'm grateful. You know, and, yeah. and she does take care of herself in that manner. And she's always exuding that to everyone else. And I'm like, I could not do without her in my life. I honestly couldn't because <laughs> I just read one thing that she writes a day. And my entire day is like, focus. I see where she's going with it, you know, and everybody called me, everybody in my family has called me Pollyanna for years. And that has seeped into social media too. And I I have friends that literally call me Pollyanna because I do find something to be glad about every day. I learned a lot from that movie. I cannot tell you how much that movie impacted my life. I try to be the same exact way. You have to. You can't be happy all day. No, but the you, just, op, you, you just have can't. to have. But you can find something to be happy about every day. You and that's can't what be I happy. choose to do. Right. The, uh, you have to have an underlying optimism to everything. And really the key to life I've come to learn is what you said your friend does there, which is everything's a lesson to be grateful for, even the bad shit. Right. <laughs> and you don't even have to have. See, that's the thing. You don't even have to have a silver lining to it. You could have just had a terrible thing today. And just how terrible it was, you can be grateful for because all the information. So, you know, if you're having a nice, comfortable, easy day, you're not actually learning or growing at all. Something awful that you have to deal with. So Mm -hmm. that was an experience to be grateful. It's all all part of life. 
the people that do that are for sure the most, the least conflicted and the most centered, quote, happy I, people. Honestly, I have to be that way for, and, and, and the thing is, I, I, you know, growing up, I was one of four girls. Um, the, my brother didn't come till I was 17. So <laughs> he came way later. Right. <laughs> um, but growing up with a bunch of girls in the house, you know, we were all different and having to stand out, it was a chore, you know, and I chose, you know, that's not going to be my chore. That's not going to be my thing. I'm just going to focus on something good every day. And, you know, and I think that would happen around the time that I saw the movie where she actually would take something bad that had happened and looked at the good of it. There was always a silver lining for her. And so that's how I started doing that. My sisters at first thought I was both crazy and, you know, a pain in the ass because of it, you know, because I was so cheerful all the time. And now in retrospect, one of them, um, she was, you know, I, I was the firstborn, the thirdborn. She calls me every time that she feels low and she's like, I just want your sunshine. And, and I'm like, tell me what happened. And so, and I will always help her with that. And I'll put it in perspective. Yeah. She suffers from high anxiety. And so she told me one of the sweetest things that she ever said was that I'm better than any drug that she's ever taken. And I'm like, if I, if, if you don't need to take a drug after talking to me, then my work year is done. You know, that I, I've done what I've, my whole life is yeah. over. It's, it's great. You know? But um, that has, because of that attitude, I have never minded losing. I've never minded failing. I've never minded, you know, messing something up. Um, I came to start doing furniture just, you know, maybe three or four years ago. And, you know, at first I, I really messed yeah. up. So yeah. I would... I would concentrate on pieces that, you know, were not high priced antiques, were not, you know, that kind of thing and honed my talents, you know, gradually on that thing. But I would fail constantly, you know, and everything. And my sister that lived up the street from me, she came down one time and I was I was outside and I was trying to figure out how to fix what I had messed up. And she comes by and she, you know, she walks up. It's like, what's wrong? It's like, well, like. I completely messed this up. I used the wrong thing on it. And now I'm trying to figure out what to do. And she's like, just throw it away. And she's like, and I'm looking at her going, no, <laughs> that's not the way to do it because you don't learn anything from that. Right, right. You know, and she's just looking at me like, I- I'll never understand you. Now she understands. Now that I do it right. for her, you know, for their expensive pieces, you know, she's like, oh, now I get it. <laughs> no, I like, I like this topic because there are certain things that people can actually change about themselves. A lot of things you can't change. Yeah, this is, that's one I feel like I'm, I'm only really learning and understanding later in life. The, the gratitude stuff and that, uh, that whole patience aspect and the not being hard on yourself and the not being self-critical and just kind of appreciate it. It really, it really is the reason I ran about it so much is because I've been able to improve it so much myself. And I, it's something people can improve upon so much. It's a conscious decision that we make. It is. It is. Uh, my mom 
is always impressed by two things that uh, two traits that I have. And she to this day does not understand how it was that I came about them. Um, my fir- the first one that really impresses her is my willpower. If I tell myself, no, I'm not going to do something, I, w- I won't do it. I just won't. You will see this uh, at the advent of Lent. I will give up certain foods and habits and I will stick with it for the 48, 49 days. And everybody's like, you get some days off. And I'm like, no, I will do it throughout the whole thing. I will have shed 10 pounds, yeah. but, but I stick to it. Um, and the other thing is my patience. I have yet to get to the point where I become impatient about something. Oh, wow. I, I, I joke about it on media. It's like, oh, I can't wait for this or whatever. Honestly, I've been able to wait. I, I had a, uh, a gift for Christmas arrived. This was a few years ago. My mom sent it early. And so I didn't have the tree. I didn't have anything up. I mean, literally, she sent it like November 23rd or something like that. Right. So, <laughs> so I just put it aside. And then I forgot about it. But it was in sight. It, it, I didn't put yeah. it away. I just put it off to the side somewhere. And Christmas came. Christmas went. I put down everything, all that stuff and everything. It is now mid-February. My mom finally calls. Well, does it fit? And I'm like, does what fit? It's like, what I gave you for Christmas. I'm like, oh, I totally forgot about it. (laughs) And the the box was there, like within my sight. I kept looking at it the whole time. I just, I'm I'm not that impatient, you know. I said, oh, yeah, let me open that. It's like, I cannot believe it's it's mid-February. You could have opened that December 25th, you know. It's like, yeah, but... You know, I was not in any hurry or anything. I, I'm pretty patient. <laughs> yeah, never having felt impatience. I think you're on, a, on an extreme level of, the, uh, of that spectrum there. It's definitely something I've, I've, had a, I've had a harder time with. It's something that my mom asked me, how is it that you are so patient? Because she is a prayer. I mean, she prays for hours every day. And I was like, mom, it's the same thing. It's, it's the same thing as prayer. And she's like, no, because with prayer, I'm actually doing something. I'm holding the rosary. I'm doing this. I'm like, blah, blah, blah. And I said, I said, but when you're praying, you're completely focused on something, right? I'm completely focused on being patient. That's all it is. Interesting. And so, yeah, mo- most things are a conscious decision. And I, mm-hmm. I think we, we use a cop out of, well, that's just how I am. With a lot of things, but you can change them. And I've, I've noticed that in quitting things that I've done my whole life or stopping things for long periods of time. Like you said, that, that whole discipline aspect, that idea you really can just say, I'm not going to do this. And then yeah, just I'm not doing Yeah, I'm pretty sure it. I got that from my dad. <laughs> but it, 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 is, it is a correctable thing. I realized more as life has gone on the extent to which it is correctable versus a personality type thing. It There are some things that are endemic to our personality that we cannot change. This Correct. is true. But there are some right. things that you can not necessarily change, but improve upon. Well, um, we can change our approach and line of thinking to think yes. almost anything and how we process information, how we perceive that that stuff is all very much improvable. Very, very much so. Yes, this is true. 
<laughs> yeah, no, the whole the whole way that I process information now has probably changed more over the last few years than for 20 years before that. Just through kind of going through making a concerted effort to do that and to understand myself differently. And, and uh, so now I look at everyone else. I'm like, you got to try this. You got to do this because, you, you know, you could really help yourself here. You could really fix this thing. It's like whenever I do something that I feel such a change with or an improvement with, I, I, I want to tell everybody, but people are so resistant to it. I have no luck doing that. That's what the pod's for. <laughs> people I know are too resistant. Uh, there, there are some that are very resistant to change because they're comfortable and they don't like discomfort. They like being in a comfortable zone. It's the discomfort. Um, People don't want to go there with themselves and no, think about no, those things. They have an inordinate, either a fear of failure, a fear of ridicule, or just an inordinate fear of finding something that they like better. And yeah. believe it or not, that's a thing. A lot of people are like, well, you know, I like what I have right now. I like where I'm at. If I go and do this and I find I like it, that will be a lifestyle change. That will change a lot of the stuff that I have in this little sphere. And I'm not comfortable with that. So that's an yeah. actual valid fear for some people. Yeah, too. everything. Everything is fear based, right? I mean, if you look here is a great motivator too. well, right. It's the motivator and it's the preventer of almost anything. Yes. If you look at anyone's life and say, why aren't they doing this specific thing that they should be doing to improve whatever area it is? You know, mm -hmm. it's almost always a fear of something. Yes. You know, I, uh, a friend of mine likes to uh, share photographs of the Pacific Northwest with me. And one of them is Deception Pass. And <laughs> it's a running joke. I will never be on it. <laughs> nope, 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 nope. That is a valid fear of mine. Yeah. I recognize it. That does not mean I cannot appreciate the beauty right. of Deception Pass or think that, you know, all it is is, you know, death waiting for me. I, I don't think that way. It's just I I couldn't be on it. I do have a specific fear and well, it no. just it physically affects me. So, yes. And some of those fears are like, you know, legitimate fears of, you know, physical safety. No, I I see people on Deception Pass. I, I see the pictures of no, it I and know. everything. Royal Gorge is another one. And I recall being, I want to say it was in Germany somewhere. And it was a bridge uh, over um, a tall near, near the, actually, the Neander Valley, where we get Neanderthal from. Yeah. Um, and and I, I, it's a walking bridge. It's not a, you know, you go, you park, and you walk in, and you admire the view and everything. It's beautiful. I could literally feel pain in my legs from being on that bridge. Right. And I was I was with my girlfriend, Monica. I was like, Monica, I got to go. And she's looking at me and like, but don't you think it's beautiful? I was like, it's gorgeous over here. It's beautiful. I've never seen anything like it. If I don't get back to the car, I'm, I will not be able to move my legs. So we go back to the car and I am just running my hands down my legs, you know, and, and everything. And she's like, what is wrong? It's like, it's pain. Yeah. It's just sheer pain of just the fear of being on that bridge. I cannot explain it to you. I, I can relate to the involuntary fear stuff. The, uh, the stuff that would seem, you know, a lot, it just, it 
just gives me a panic attack. You know what I mean? I can't tell yeah. you why. Even that stuff, I think, like, if you really want it, like, if you really said, hey, I want to make it this goal, you know, you see it with hypnotherapy and things like that. Yeah. There really is some buried somewhere underlying false thing you have in there that made you like that. Right. I, I, I'm sure there is. I like, cannot right. for the last time remember what it was. Yeah, no. <laughs> I, like they think a lot of maybe from past lives even you know what i mean um mm -hmm. yeah a lot of the stuff we can very clearly say oh i don't want to try this profession because i'm afraid of this specific aspect of it or whatever but yeah yeah a lot of that stuff we're just like wow why does this freak me out way more than it should intellectually i know this because i've dealt with that shit my whole life too and you go intellectually this should not be freaking me out but my body is responding as if I'm in a really bad situation, even though I know that I'm not something in me thinks that I am. Yeah. Those are, yeah. those are tough. I mean, I, I can't tell you why I react that way on, on a high bridge, you know, yeah. or, or whatever. Um, I can tell you why I have a thing about electricity though. I have a myriad of lamps in my house. <laughs> I buy the vintage lamps all the time. Right. And some of them need rewiring. And a lot of people tell me, oh, it's easy to do. You can buy the lamp kit and just follow the instructions. No, I'm not doing that. Why? Because it requires I test it in a plug. And I'm okay with plugging things and yeah. then turning them on. But I'm not okay with rewiring things, plugging it in, and then turning it on. I Why? Would. Because when I was little, I think I was three or four, I decided to take a screwdriver and stick it in a socket. And that taught me a lesson. And after that, I've had a deep respect for electricity. <laughs> I've heard of a lot of kids doing <laughs> stuff like that and like getting shot across the room and all kinds of shit. Uh, oh, I fell back on the bed going, wow. <laughs> yeah, no, but see, those are legit. Like electricity scares me. Those are like legit fears because you can actually be electrocuted, right? Yes. And, like and, on that bridge, you know, nothing's actually going to happen to you, but. Exactly. With When you you're rewiring talk. that lamp, you could make a mistake and electrocute yourself. I used yep. to have. I shouldn't even talk about how weird. I used to have like OCD shit when I was younger. I still a little OCD. It's got speaking of things that have gotten way better. But I used to have to put my finger in empty lamp light bulb sockets, which you get oh, pretty yeah. severe charge from also. You can. It's, you know, it grabs you. Uh, it's this weird sensation. And I would, if I ever saw an empty lamp, I would have to do it to feel that little shock or if i was changed sometimes i would just do it with my own lamp i would just have to do it a certain amount of times or whatever um yeah we're we're strange creatures humans yeah we are and we're all wired differently and some of the wires sometimes get crossed and sometimes <laughs> was that a they pun? don't connect was, was that a purposeful pun there with the wires <laughs> being crossed <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> um aggie listen i've kept you way longer than i told you i was going to I talk a lot. No, it's my I, fault. we have, I, it's good. Cause now I can get <laughs> you back on and we have a whole lot more stuff to discuss. It was a lot um, of fun. Yeah. I can't think, tell before we, uh, wrap up, tell everybody again, please, where to find you, social media, podcasts, all that good stuff. Where, where do they get your content? Well, you can find me at Aggie Recon and at Aggie, the barkeep. Those are two accounts I keep over on Twitter. Uh, as far as podcasts go, I'm on the Cocktail Lounge, which airs Tuesday nights, 8.30 p.m. Eastern on klrnradio.com. Also on He Said, She Said, which airs Friday nights, 8.30 p.m. Eastern. And 
that one's with our friend Mickey Blowtorch. The cocktail lounge one, I I am co-host with uh, Brad Slager of uh, Red State and Salem Media. Yes. And... uh, Thanks for having me. It was it was a lot of fun. Yeah, guys, check that out. This is a, a fun group and uh, and some fun shows. Uh, KLRNRadio.com. It's it's a cool family over there. I think you guys will enjoy a lot of that content. Uh, and Aggie Rican on Twitter. I forgot you had the second Twitter account. Oh, the at Aggie the Barkeep. The Barkeep. <laughs> yes, it's a cocktail account. <laughs> really, thank you for coming on. It's it's been a treat, and you're you're welcome back anytime. I'll definitely have you back on. Awesome. Great. I look forward to it. Thanks thank so you. much, John. And uh, and thank you guys all for tuning in. I will be back in a few days with some more great guests for you. And uh, I hope everybody's having a beautiful week. And I will see you all soon. Be good.